This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And we have someone that I'm so happy is here, and I'm so happy she's writing fiction. She also writes poetry and has written a play, but predominantly fiction. The novel is The Rabbit Hutch. Tess Gunty is, how do I describe Tess's prose? Okay, think Jennifer Egan's Look at Me and Dennis Johnson's Jesus's Son. Let's start there. But if you remember also a couple of earlier Discover picks, there was Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore. And there was also Shiner by Amy Jo Burns. And the way those two novels capture their place, one is Midland, Texas, and one is sort of rural Appalachia. Yeah, you really need the rabbit hutch. So Tess, thank you so much for joining us. But I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and introduce the rabbit hutch to listeners. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. My name is Tess Gunty. I I'm the author of The Rabbit Hutch, and it's a novel that takes place over the course of three hot days one summer, and it follows a group of characters in a fictional post-industrial city called Vacaville, Indiana, as their lives violently collide. Okay, so I want to start with Blandine, who is sort of the heart. She's not sort of, she is the heart of this novel. Blandine is ferocious. She is either in love with things, or man, she is absolutely she hates, there's no middle ground for Blandine. She's 18. She's aged out of the foster care system. She is living with three other kids who have also aged out of the foster care system. And when I say kids, 18, 19, your brain isn't fully cooked yet. You are not, you're still closer to being a kid than not. Can we talk about how Blandine started for you? Because she, she had to have been the first character who showed up. She she was certainly the character that was the most natural for me to write, but actually Joan was the very first character that came to me. Okay. And I okay. think um, Joan, yeah, Joan introduced me in some ways to Blondine because I think in, mm-hmm. in many ways they're they're almost the opposite in terms of their internal experiences, but they're after the same things. Mm-hmm. And Blondine was, um, I think she wasn't just in many ways the hero that I wanted to see. She's She's extreme, she's strange, she's flawed, but she's also someone who is, um, she's always taken refuge in her intellect. She's mm-hmm. someone who has always found refuge in learning. And in many, in, in, like in many aspects of her life, she's had almost no power. She's been at the mercy of these really powerful, really heartless structures. But learning is um, the one realm, this kind of cerebral realm where no one can touch her. Mm-hmm. And so I think to write a, a young woman who refuses to define herself by anything other than her activism, her mind, her curiosity, that was just a delight. And she wasn't the most predictable character, but she was the one who mm-hmm. always told me what to do on every page. It seems to me that she wants more for Vacaville and the community almost than she wants for herself. And I'm not saying this as if she's martyred herself, but she gets much more worked up much more quickly about what's happening to her community. And I thought that was a really nice touch because it's not something you always see. I, we could argue that The Rabbit Hutch is a coming-of-age novel. I mean, there's, there's a lot happening here. But for her, that's a big part of the story because later, and we're going to dance around this because it is a spoiler, later she has a moment 
with someone from her past that wouldn't necessarily have been set up without all of the other energy that she put into her community and what was happening and fighting gentrification, among other things. Can we go back to Joan for a second? Because I it didn't occur to me that Joan would have been the first character that showed up. She is Blondine's neighbor. She lives downstairs in the building called the Rabbit Hutch, the apartment building in Vacaville. Joan showed up first. Can you tell people who Joan is and, and what she does? Because she's a great character, but I'm a little surprised. Yeah, I I mean, she so she's um, a woman in her 40s. She screens obituary comments for a living. So it's an online obituary website. And she is essentially a moderator, making sure people aren't posting mean or copyrighted remarks about the deceased. And um, she came to me, I think, after I had heard an interview with someone who did that job for a living. And I, I think it was on This American Life. I'm not sure. It was a pretty short interview. But I just wondered what what such a job would do to your psychology. What would this kind of immersion in in a world that is so full of contrast? Because on the one hand, it's it's the internet, it's the mundane, it's um, and then on the other hand, it's um, it's the stage at which someone is entering, is leaving the world, and and everyone in their life is coping with that. And so I thought this kind of contrast must produce something really really interesting in in such a screener's mind over time. She's kind of an invisible person in her town. I think people rarely pay attention to her. There are very few things set up for her. She's single, she's, you know, she's not making much money. And it was kind of interesting at the time to write a woman like that uh, in contrast to Blondine, who's kind of more visible than she can even handle. But both of them are kind of brutally, uh, visible and invisible. I think like both states bring both women into the same place, which is that they both feel essentially um, dehumanized by the surroundings. And Joan has a really hard time standing up for herself. When we first meet her, she's got a supervisor saying, well, you should have deleted this comment. Why did you not delete this comment? A, a child, a former child actor has died and someone has jumped on to the obituary to leave a rather pointed comment in all caps. And uh, the supervisor is not being good about this. And Joan said, well, the, the person who left the comment, I deleted it and then they emailed me. And it's almost like she has forgotten how to connect with people because she's so isolated. Yes. Yeah. She's, I think all the characters in this novel are fairly lonely, but I think for, for Joan, her loneliness is, um, is unmediated. She only has a few interactions throughout the novel and they're all with people she rarely knows at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, she barely knows. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was interesting for me to write a character. I mean, I just kind of fell in love with her on the first page when she mm -hmm. was struggling so hard to even have this very basic interaction with her boss when she's, she kind of collapses into stuttering. She gets, she almost has an anxiety attack during this mm -hmm. confrontation. And I just wanted to protect her. And mm -hmm. In many ways, you don't want to develop um, overly sentimental feelings about your character. But as soon mm -hmm. as I, as soon as she came to me, I just wanted to care for her, and I wanted to see what happens to her over the course of this week. I think maybe she represents a lot of the sort of both interpersonal and structural failings of her city. You do a lot with very small details for all of your characters. I mean, Blondine and her apartment mates, and there are going to be other people we'll get to in the story. But one of the things that stuck with me about Joan, too, is that she has an aunt who's sending her presents. And 
Joan clearly wants to connect with this aunt, and they're not things she wants. It's not the point. Everyone has an elderly aunt who sends, you know, we all have people in our lives who send us stuff, and you send a thank you note. And Joan really kind of psychs herself out of sending thank you notes. She's like, well, I don't know what to say, and then it's been too long and everything. I, her aunt doesn't care. She just send a note. You can send a note three years later. She won't care. Just send the note. It doesn't have to say anything beyond thank you so much. And, and just that moment where she can't even connect with someone she's known for quite a long time and she's having a hard time. It's just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that she can't figure out how to fit someplace. This is the positive feedback loop of solitude. I think the longer you go without connecting to anyone, the harder it becomes. And you see that pretty amplified in Joan, who was, we kind of learn later in the book, an only child. She had to take care of both of her parents as they died. And, you know, without, without any kind of intergenerational wealth, without any money of her own. And in many ways, she's been trapped in her current life by the financial debt that she's been saddled with from, um, from those for, for caring, from caring for her parents. And so I, I've definitely, I mean, even just in, in little weeks of my life where I've gone without, without interacting with people, I always know that when I do go out into the world and even have an interaction with like a cashier at a cafe, I, I find it so difficult to interact with people normally. I feel like I'm blinking at the wrong times. I feel like I, I don't know when to speak, when not to speak. And so even though that trait is really amplified in Joan, it was something that I think I've definitely experienced and I, I know others have as well. You grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and Vacaville is based, you know, in, let's call it inspired by South Bend, Indiana. Would you describe South Bend as you knew it from childhood for people who have not been there? Yeah, so... Um, South Bend is sort of famously home to the University of Notre Dame. I mean, I don't know how famous that is, but it is what it's known for now. It used to be home to Studebaker Automobiles, which was at one point the largest car manufacturing facility in America. And then it closed in the 1960s. And so the town used to have these two economies that were um, both bringing, you know, great prosperity to it. But the car manufacturing company was was far and by far way more prosperous than the university was. And so at the time, and I think it was open for about a hundred years, it was an enormous source of town identity, not to mention revenue. And then when it closed in the sixties, you know, of course, some people could transition to other jobs, but there were whole swaths of the population that got left behind and were, and were orphaned for generations. And so now, um, and one of the reasons I didn't set Vacaville just in South Bend was because in part, this was an experiment to imagine what would happen if the university hadn't been there to absorb mm-hmm. some of the economic shock. Because even with the university there, I mean, I grew up in a town where I grew up in a neighborhood where about half the people were associated with the university, and then half the people had been there for generations. And um, and we lived so close together, and yet everyone in this neighborhood had a completely different hands dealt at birth and a very very different um, different access to resources educational resources, financial resources, and then other forms of social protection. And so I think from birth onward, it was just it, just having close relationships within my neighborhood to me that there was no such thing as a meritocracy and that there were these structures that were failing a huge number of people in, in this region. And then cities that are so incredibly similar, like Flint, Michigan, Gary, Indiana, Youngstown, Ohio, where there weren't other economies that arrived. Did you have to leave 
South Bend in order to be able to write about it the way you do? That was absolutely my experience. I, I think I had tried a little bit to write about my hometown by the time I was in college, but I did not have enough distance. I was losing the forest for the trees. And I also think I needed to develop enough distance to experience the tenderness for once toward my hometown. I think mm-hmm. when you're when you're immersed in a place that you want to leave, it's really hard to feel the um to notice the beauty and the kindness and and all that makes the place a place that you're attached to as well. And so when I left, I could suddenly see it clearly, not just, you know, my awareness of the kind of economic pain, I think heightened when I left, but also my awareness of the things that are worth saving and protecting there. Those also heightened. What's been the biggest change that you've seen in the community and something that you used? I I suspect I know the answer to this, but something that you used in Rabbit Hutch, because it does feel like Vacaville is very much alive on the page for you that you know where you turn right to get to X thing and where you turn left and where you have to do a U-turn. And it feels like you know this landscape really, really well. And I'm not saying it's South Bend, certainly not, but that emotional terrain, that emotional landscape, what have you taken away? I think growing up, the landscape seemed um, quite brutal to me. I think the the sort of pain that I witnessed in other people and then even in my own household, um, the kind of economic strain that was just everywhere you looked was also visible in the landscape. It was visible in vacant factories and, you know, these uh, completely unnatural monocrops of corn and soybeans that surrounded our, the outskirts of the town. And the downtown was actually, I mean, my house was pretty close to downtown and it was this kind of crumbling uh, like relic of the past because so many of the buildings had been constructed in the time of prosperity. And they were the only buildings I ever saw that had some kind of um, real beauty invested in their architecture. And yet they were mostly abandoned. For me, that, yeah, the, the kind of emotional textures, the psychological textures and the economic textures in my town were inseparable from the landscape itself. So when I was thinking back on images that had struck me and, um, um, you know, there's a, there's a river in my town, which I put in the, in, in Vacaville as well, that's flooding more every year, thanks to climate change. And, um, and also the river is completely polluted. I think this is a town that has had, in American towns, at least beauty is kind of the first thing to go. And because it's not utilitarian, course there's no economic incentive to put it in but I think that that makes an enormous difference in terms of what you think is possible in your landscape and and um and how trapped you feel in a place yeah you know as you were speaking I was suddenly thinking of William Kennedy's Albany cycle which includes the novel Ironweed which I mean obviously set in the in the 20s and 30s but that kind of ferocious understanding of a place that has seen better days, um, but still has a community that, like Blandine and like some of the other characters, they don't want to leave its home. How do you leave? You can't leave home. You've got to figure out how to save it. And she has a very punk rock response. (laughs) Early in the book, we meet her when she does something uh, to upset the balance of power a little bit at a very fancy dinner. And I just, I, as you can tell, I was laughing when I read that too, because I was like, okay, who is this kid? What is she up to? But she's trying to fight gentrification almost on her own. 
Yeah. And that's a lot for an 18 year old. Right. I mean, I think, I think that her, the kind of uh, renegade wonkiness of her, of her activism is, is really a testament to the, uh, the ways that the structures have failed her. I think she knows that there's no way to go through the systems to incite change at this point. They're just, everything is rigged against her and everything's kind of rigged against her, um, her community. And there used to be a very long chapter that I took out of her kind of, she was at a community meeting, one of these development meetings before, the last meeting before the developers go forward with the mm-hmm. uh, demolishment of the valley. And you get um, a sort of speech that she's written out. But when, when the developer calls on her and says, uh, we haven't heard from you, but I've noticed you at a lot of our meetings. Do you have anything to contribute? She doesn't say anything because she looks and she sees a room full of white men from other cities that, um, and, and she just knows there's no way that whatever I say is going to make a difference right now. And so she takes this really a peculiar <laughs> route, I think because she feels that she has no other choice. She is an incredibly unique voice. And, and part of that voice comes from something that I had Okay, my experience of sort of religious anything comes from literature. So, you know, there's Ron Hansen's Marriott and Ecstasy. There is The Ninth Hour by Alice McDermott and Matrix by Lauren Groff, which really, really, every time I talk about this book, I'm like, Lauren made me care about nuns in the 12th century. Like, I didn't really know about Hildegard. (laughs) And there's a lot of Hildegard in this book. And you have in previous interviews also said, well, I wanted to be a mystic when I was a child. And I want to bring all of this in. And I'm not certainly, you know, we know Blandine is relatable, but not you. This is not autofiction. But it is clearly something you have been thinking about for a really long time. And it's a really interesting tack to take this sort of technically martyred abbess who was she a was, mystic. She died. Her her namesake was martyred, but Hildegard. Oh, sorry. Okay. Died. She died of essentially old age. How did we get here? Like, how... <laughs> Can we just please talk about this for a minute? <laughs> well, probably one one thing that's very relevant here is that my mother um, was in a convent in her 20s and mm-hmm. my father had really seriously considered the priesthood at one point. So Catholicism was not just something that was in my community and my schools. I mean, I didn't go to a non-Catholic school until graduate school, but it was in my household. It was the root of every single of every single action. And so and I think my parents really did a, a good job of raising us to believe, I mean, none of my brothers or I are practicing Catholics anymore, but my parents still are. And um, I think that they always raised us to think that we happen to be Catholics because that's kind of what our, our ancestors happen to be. It's the one that we, ha- we happen to be offered. It's, but, um, but that all religions sort of, I mean, all major religions were kind of all oriented toward the good in the world and that that was ultimate and and toward human justice. And so I think my parents had this kind of a much more, um, even now, like a much more relatable approach to Catholicism than um, a lot of people in my town and certainly like a lot of my religion teachers did. My parents were really interested in, in the social justice aspect of Catholicism. My mother's Catholicism is also really, really driven by signs and wonders and visions and miracles and mystics. And so I think growing up with, um, she has a lot of um, kind of glimmering, inexplicable stories on her side of the family, especially among the women of her family. 
that have to do with visitations from saints and prophecies and things like that. And so I don't know what to do with those narratives now, but growing up among them made that world, the world of the kind of the transcendent um, seem not just real to me, but accessible. It seemed like anyone could access it at any time. And that if you could access this kind of otherworldly um, union with the divine, why not go for it? And as a child, I was a, I was a really, really, you know, like many writers, a very uh, sensitive and anxious kid. And I think the idea of sort of retreating into my mind, which had caused me so much anxiety um, in order to find peace, transcendence, bliss, that was extremely appealing to me. There's a young mother that we meet in the rabbit hutch. <laughs> and I really hope you get enough credit for being as funny as you are because <laughs> she thinks her baby's eyes are freaky. <laughs> She's afraid of her newborn baby's eyes, which is one of those details where you're like, okay, where is this going? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I promise I will stop laughing at some point because I do have a question here. But there's another mom in the book, this former child actress, OLC. Oh, Elsie. And I love the idea that she's on this television show that mom who's afraid, Hope, who's afraid of her baby's eyes, is watching on loop because it's very, it's soothing to her. She's watched every episode a thousand times. She knows every line of, every, you know, every piece of dialogue. Elsie is not much of a mom. She still represents the American dream for so many people, including Hope, who's really having a rough go of it, even though I'm making fun of that lovely detail of being afraid of her baby's eyes. But Elsie's son, Moses, is a great character. He is really a piece of work, but in a good way. But their relationship is a different way of talking about class. It's a different way of talking about American history. It's a different way of talking about motherhood. Moses actually has a moment with a priest in a church in Fuckabay. <laughs> so where did Elsie come from? Where did Moses come from? How did you know they were going to be part of this? This novel was making me think about America in pretty explicit mm -hmm. terms and the kinds of promises that are sold to people. Even though most of my, almost all of my characters live in the same housing complex in the same town, I thought there is some, there is some other world that they are connected to, which is this world of narratives, Hollywood, and mm -hmm. um, that is kind of manufacturing American dreams and, and selling it to these people to, um, you know, to often people who have no access to, to those kinds of uh, resources or lifestyles. And so I think in Elsie, what it gave me, Elsie gave me a chance to think more expansively about the extraction economy, not just um, as it destroys landscapes and towns and economies, but how could it destroy an individual who's actually benefited from it enormously. She's acquired uh, fame and wealth at a very young age, but she also was a woman uh, who was, you know, famous in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And so she was vulnerable to pretty atrocious sexism as well. All of these forces together kind of have created a, a narcissistic monster who's also, I think, really likable. And in some ways, I mean, I was kind of rooting for her. And every time she she did something terribly as a mother, I kind of, I understood it. I just, I couldn't have written her to be that bad of a parent unless I understood why she, you know, the forces mm -hmm. that were acting upon her. I think she's someone who felt 
somewhat forced into motherhood, even though she knew she didn't, you know, she wasn't physically forced into it. It simply didn't come to her. That's what she says at one point to her son, like motherhood just has never come to me. I was interested too in what kind of the kinds of intergenerational consequences of this essentially abuse by fame, abuse by wealth. What does that mm-hmm. look like? And then Moses is somewhere where we can we can see that. Rabbit Hutch started as your thesis at grad school, right? That's right. Okay. You were at NYU studying creative writing. You're living in Brooklyn. You're spending a lot of time in Prospect Park. None of this is quite South Bend, Indiana. Can we talk about how you sat down? And yes, you had to leave South Bend to sort of start writing about the Midwest and everything else. But how did Rabbit Hutch start as your thesis? How did it turn into what we're reading now? Well, I actually wrote um, hundreds of pages that I ended up throwing away first of different projects, um, as you do when you're young. And so I think by the time I started The Rabbit Hutch, I really felt free to write what I wanted to write because I knew that I could just, I could shelve it like I did with all the other projects that didn't end up um, going anywhere. And so I think that that freedom gave me an opportunity to be kind of uncompromising in my tastes, especially the more peculiar uh, senses of humor or like just um, character directions that I wanted to go in. And I, th- I had a, my advisor was Rick Moody and he was the person who also was my workshop leader at the time when I first started writing this. And he had not been, um, you know, particularly supportive of the other things I had been writing, which were really overwritten. It was, you know, it was all about the language and they're all very somber. And then this one, he, he encouraged me to keep with it, to stay with it and, and stick with it for my thesis. And I think he also discouraged me from finishing a full draft of it before I graduated, because he knew that I would be tempted to rush it. And, you know, there's a lot of momentum and that you're meeting with agents. You think I got to have a novel right now. And, and he said, no, just take any job and keep working on this. And, um, I'm really grateful for that advice because otherwise I would have rushed it and I don't think it would have turned into the thing it turned into. But I think one of the really important things about all the pages that I threw away was that they taught me um, that I was really interested in the Rust Belt, that I was really interested in polyphonic narratives. I just kept being drawn to those things. And I was really interested in um, in young female protagonists who um, sort of define themselves by their, by their minds rather than anything else. It took me five years after the program to finish this, Mm -hmm. um, working on it and working on it. And I thought when I finished the draft, I just thought, okay, um, I don't think I can do anything more with this. I think I revised it 600 times at that point, but I also had been really discouraged, I think, by the submission process of short stories, et cetera. And I just thought, no, one's going to want to read this. It's too strange. It's it's not, I've never seen, I don't, I'm having trouble, you know, finding a place in the market in my mind for this. So maybe this isn't. So I printed it out really nicely and I found it at FedEx and I put it on my shelf and I started writing a next novel. And really only when my friend encouraged me to submit it, did I, I just did it in one weekend and kind of closed my eyes the whole time and, and sent out some emails. But I'm really grateful that I had that experience of writing it without any assumption of publication. Um, I think it was the only way to have written this particular novel. I have to say, too, that hearing you say that previous projects had been overwritten, the language of the rabbit house 
is so spectacularly clear. And I read very quickly, but I cannot believe how quickly the story moved for me. Not only did I not want to put down the rabbit hutch and leave these characters, even when I wasn't quite sure what was going on. There were a couple of moments where I was like, the narrative tension and the quality of the prose and the characters and everything else, you are doing this kind of high wire act that not everyone can do. And I'm wondering, are you a linear writer? Like how many drafts did you take to get here? Because this, it's beautiful, but this is not first draft territory. <laughs> well, thank you. The, the selves that, you know, revised this a thousand times really appreciate that. I'm really grateful for you, to you for saying that. Um, yeah, I'm not a linear writer and the structure of this novel changed a lot and hundreds of pages got cut. And of course, um, all the sentences are, you know, I don't think there's a single sentence that was there from beginning to end. I was reading, I was just reading A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read it, but I, one of the lines I really loved and it was a kind of argument for incremental revision. And he says, the benefit of that is that you you bring every single self to the text over time. You bring, you know, the self that just had that great conversation, who just learned this thing, who has a terrible day, who's really hungry, you know? And I think um, that incremental re- revision for me was, uh, that was absolutely my experience of it. It was, it, was the sum of all of those selves was much better at revising than um, than like maybe two or three major revisions would have been. So one thing with the structure was that I had, uh, when I had about 150 pages of it, I had this professor, John Freeman, who later became my editor, mm-hmm. who asked us for our, our final projects to um, create a map of our work. And so we had, um, I decided to put it on, put the kind of major events and major ideas on note cards and then put them around my room in Brooklyn. And so I lived within this kind of, you know, the four walls of my book for about a year and I didn't, and I kept moving them around and everything like that. And so it was this kind of mad detective <laughs> um, display, but that, that really helped me think through what was necessary, what wasn't necessary. How were these threads going to collide? Because of course, a lot of the collisions are not utilitarian. Um, they don't have like an obvious plot function always, but they did always, it forced me to make, um, make sure nothing was there by accident to make sure that the, you know, everything kind of ran like a Swiss, a Swiss watch as much as I could. So that helped a lot. The Rabbit Hutch is also very much a hopeful book. There is an act of violence that happens that I think some readers will find surprising. It does feel very organic and very inevitable. I think what you just described is the structure of real life. I mean, if you're telling a story to someone that you're sitting next to at dinner, you're not telling them everything. You're telling them the points that matter. You're telling them the story. And I think the fact that all of your characters and how they interact and they're telling the pieces of the story, even the ones who are just leaving comments on Joan's website, on obituaries, (laughs) everyone is telling a story, whether they know it or not. So we know who you are as a writer and an editor. But who are you as a reader? Who are some of your literary influences and who have you been reading lately and recommending? Mm, um, well, I think I'm a pretty omnivorous reader um, and I always have been since childhood, but I, three of my favorite 
writers of all time. And I can't believe I get to share an era with them are Anne Carson, Claudia Rankin, and Maggie Nelson. I just think that they're doing some of the most exciting work today in the English language, at least. I encountered all of those writers in my you know, early 20s, and they just completely bulldozed my, my preconceptions about what a book needed to do. All of them are playing with form in a way that's also extremely intentional. And there's just a lot of intellectual firepower behind each of their books. And I think all of them are engaged with, um, well, you see this more explicitly in Maggie Nelson and Claudia Rankin's work, really engaged with issues, with matters of social justice, marrying those with their art. Um, so I, I love those writers. I really love a lot of contemporary poetry. I think that I, that's where I usually go for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, Ocean Vuong, of course, Morgan Parker, Yusuf Komanyaka, um, Robin Cost Lewis and Tracy K. Smith. The books that I was reading when I was writing this book were a lot of polyphonic contemporary fiction, like um, N.W. by Zadie Smith, and obviously a Visit from the Goon Squad, Jennifer Egan, um, Great House by Nicole Kraus. Mm-hmm. And then I read Middlemarch as I was revising it, and I had never read it before. And that was really, really helpful to me as well. Um, but then, you know, in college, I think I, I've been reading mostly contemporary work since I graduated college, because I think before then I was mostly, you know, I was an English major and I was reading very little contemporary work. Um, but people who meant a lot to me then were Beckett, you know, T.S. Eliot, Shakespeare, et cetera. And so now I'm reading, I just started Near to the Wild Heart by Clarice Lispector. Um, I love her work so much and I'm always surprised by it. And then I just finished uh a poetry collection by Tay Tibble called Pocahontas. And it's um, it's beautiful. I could highly recommend both. What do you miss most about the rabbit hutch? What do you miss most about the world and the characters and the time you spent creating all of it? I think Blondine was someone that I felt so deeply connected to and so um, so inspired by. I mean, I really rarely write a character who... I feel that um, I can kind of look up to. I don't know if that's like a very helpful dynamic between a writer and a character, but she was in many ways everything that I felt I couldn't be. She had this kind of courage, um, both a physical and I think psychological uh, resilience and courage that I I don't think I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she also she never succumbs to self pity, and she is she was just such a fun mind to write because I always thought of her as more intelligent than I am. So she was, she really challenged me to, um, to think in, in really different thought patterns. Um, Mm -hmm, but at the mm -hmm. same time, she also shared a lot of my obsessions and sort of ticks. And, and so I just felt like she was this, um, this person who maybe had, uh, you know, maybe like a relative that's, that's shares your native language and you can really, you can really know each other on a, on a level you can't know anyone else, but also someone that's sufficiently different from you to challenge you and um, refresh your worldview. So I miss her. I wasn't thrilled when the book ended. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. How are we done? Um, your brother illustrated a chapter of the novel, and I think it's so great. But can we talk about how that came about? Because that is not something you find in a lot of debut novels. And it it absolutely works. It is exactly where it needs to be in the book. But how do we bring your brother and his work into this? Yeah. So fortunately, um, Knopf was extremely amenable to that request right away. They were just kind of like, okay, 
Sure. Here's the timeline. That was part of the vision for the novel from the very beginning. And mm-hmm. actually, I remember when I finished it as my thesis, I went out to dinner with my parents and my brother, Nick, who did the illustrations. And he was getting really excited about all the kind of multi, um, like the, he, he thought maybe we should make like a, a YouTube video and put it on YouTube of uh, mm-hmm. the act of violence that like is in the book and make a link and whatever. Um, he is a visual artist and musician. And so he's, um, he's a, someone who's kind of very creatively expansive in his thinking. But when I finally asked him to do the illustrations, I had always had in mind um, a kind of literal interpretation of the events at hand that, that are being described in this. And I always knew they're from the perspective of a character named Todd. And I thought of this as his, um, his form of expression. You learn early on that Todd really likes to draw. He's always making comics. And this is kind of his one, he's a pretty closed off character, but this is his one form of, of self-expression. And so when I started describing what I had envisioned to Nick, he said, okay. And then he listened and he thought, well, he suggested making a more uh, figurative interpretation of the events at hand. And when he started describing what he had in mind, I was just, it was one of those ideas that was just so immediately better than the other one. And I was so much more interested. So we went through several drafts of it. You know, he gave me um, mock-ups of all of the drawings and we went and we tweaked things together. He's, he's very easy to collaborate with. And, um, and yeah, and then he gave me the final draft and I was just, I still, uh, when I open the book, I just get so, um, it gives me such joy to see them there because I think they add this kind of, yeah, multi-textual, dimensional, you know, multi-dimensional aspect to the novel. You have written poetry in the past. You've written a play. I know I mentioned both of those before. The next novel comes out in 2023. Is it related to The Rabbit Hutch or is it its own new fabulous story? Well, it's... um. It's very much in progress. It's due, mm-hmm. it's due in February. Um, I have the first section of it written and it the first section does take place in a town that is like mine. Mm-hmm. And it does follow um, a working class man and especially his relationship with his father mm-hmm. after he survived a pretty terrible attack. And mm-hmm. so there are overlaps. They're definitely not in the same, they're not, it's not a sequel, but it. I think they're, they're orbiting, it, this novel is orbiting kind of similar obsessions and ideas. Um, I'm thinking a lot about kind of toxic post-industrial nostalgia and especially how that relates to, yeah, the ways that we think about our own pasts. And so the next part of the book, though, is not going to be set in Indiana. It's going to be set somewhere else. Okay. I still really, 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 really want to read the next book. Do we have a title yet? Did I say that it was called Honeydew? It is called Honeydew. Okay. Okay. And I don't know, you know, these publishing dates are not always set in stone. It might be published in 2024, but it's uh it's due in february so (laughs) (laughs) okay we can be patient that's okay we can read the rabbit hutch more than once it's okay but i am excited to see where you go next and i I love this idea of you having sort of themes that you want to sort of stay with i think that's and and i think we need to spend more time in the rust belt and i think we need to spend more time in the midwest and yeah, I'll follow you anywhere. So just whatever the next book is, <laughs> whatever the next book is. Tescanti, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The Rabbit Hutch is our August 2022 Discover pick. Thanks again. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Rabbit Hutch. My name is Mark. My name is Becky. 
and we're coming to you from our home store in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. I have to say, first off, though, I'm very excited for the rabbit hutch. It looks so messed up and fantastic. <laughs> I cannot wait. But I'm going to go ahead and talk about a different book. And it is dark and wonderful and crushing and hopeful. And it is Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Oh, my God, this book. First of all, read everything that this author has written. <laughs> Truly brilliant. Uh, I don't think there's a, a sentence that... Um, isn't profound. Uh, I really, 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 really love this author. So check all of them out, but Salvage the Bones is what we're talking about. The book takes place over the span of 12 days where a devastating hurricane is uh, looming on the horizon. It also follows this family uh, in these 12 days who will we'll just focus on the children because that's what the book is fo focusing on. It's these four siblings who are really trying to survive, first of all, um, without their mother, who has passed, and their father, who is really not there. It's small-town Mississippi. I think hard scrabble is an understatement for what these kids are dealing with. Watching young people try to survive something that they really shouldn't and putting them in circumstances that you don't ever want to see them in is always pretty devastating. But in her hands, in, in Jasmine Ward's hands, it's glorious and lovely and devastating and so, so powerful. I feel like this is something that could be considered an American classic um, decades from now. Um, I, I put it in very high esteem. Everything she writes is brilliant, um, but just at least start with this one so you can get a taste of how fantastic she is and how she can take the human condition and the American experience and really shed light on it in a lovely way. Uh, so that is Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Um, and yeah, I just need to echo what Mark said. Uh, she's so good. She is. Uh, that book is so good, too. Uh, just uh, anyway. Um, so I am here <laughs> to talk about another book that I think will pair nicely with Rabbit Hutch. Um, the book that I thought of is The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. Oh, yeah. So basically, this is Orange is the New Black, but in like 2003, yeah. kind of, um, it, it follows Romy Hall, who uh, is an ex-stripper, single mom, and uh, she is about to start two consecutive life sentences, plus six years, um, at the Stanville Women's Correctional Facility, which is deep in the California Valley. And this book is dark and brutal mm -hmm. and not a comfortable read, really. But I really appreciated, I think, just seeing things that are very much outside of my scope and what I would normally read. So uh, while Romy is the main character, uh, you do see a lot of supporting characters, um, some other inmates. Um, you also meet a teacher who is kind of helping them out. It shines the light on a lot of flaws and injustices that are occurring in society and in the justice system and in the penal system. And Romy, who is there, she was a stripper at the, at the Mars Room, and um, she is in prison because she killed the stalker. That would not leave her alone. Um, she She's also a single mom. She has a son named Jackson who you get to see more of through flashbacks of before she was in prison, but just gritty, but so good. And yeah. it really breaks your heart. But it just, I feel like it just really made me 
angry on her behalf and um, and just then wanting to know more of, mm-hmm. um, you know, why didn't things work the way that they should? Why aren't things probably working the way that they should in a lot of these systems? So anyway, if you're willing to take this ride, um, it's The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. I highly recommend it. Oh, such a good choice. <laughs> Rachel Kushner's really, really good flamethrowers is. Oh my gosh, it is on my TBR and I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, She's just good. Oh, Um, yeah. So, well, thank you. I think yours as well. So, this is all that we have for today. Um, Thank you for listening to Port Over. Please rate and subscribe when you get a chance so that you never miss an episode. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And uh, we are coming to you from our store in Westchester. You can follow our store at BN Westchester. Honestly, just come to the store and hang out with us. Oh my God, we would love that. We can just talk books all day. Yeah, you'll be in for a treat, trust us. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Happy reading. Bye, everybody. Thank you. (laughs) Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.